Turn your Bibles with me to uh, 1 John. We're starting a new series today that I'm pretty excited about. 1 John is a book that uh, has been rocking my world, and, uh, and I pray that it rocks your world as well. 1 John, we're going to look at the entire first chapter and the first two verses of the second chapter today. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. And if you are new to the Bible, 1 John is toward the end of the book, and uh, you will find Revelation at the very, the very back of the Bible. And if you just flip forward a couple books, you'll see 1 John right there. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Read along with me as I, as I read aloud. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the dark, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for, our, for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you uh, illuminate us, that you help us to see the truth that's in these, these words right here. Lord, we, we recognize that what we're reading today is, is your inspired word given to us that's been preserved for us. At the same time, we recognize that these are, this is ink on paper. And unless your spirit does something and takes this ink on paper, takes these words and, and somehow makes them alive in our hearts, then, then, then there's nothing really that I can do. And so I ask that your spirit then move through me as I, as I speak, that it's not me speaking, but that it's your word for us with the authority right here in 1 John. And I pray that your spirit then moves in the hearts of the individuals here and that that you then corporately unite us together into into one sweeping grand movement and that this truth becomes alive in our midst and that we fall more in love with with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. She's not a Christian or I'm sorry, she's a Christian, but not the born-again type of Christian. 
That's how a friend of mine was describing a friend of his who's a Christian, but not the born-again kind of Christian. So my, my friend is not a Christian. He's an agnostic. And he is in some ways defending her faith by saying, all right, she's one of you. She's, I mean, she's a Christian, but you've got to understand something, Joel. She's not the born-again type. I mean, she's not that wacky, fundamentalist, cult-like brand of Christianity. Like, she has the respectable type of Christianity. I wonder what you uh, think of when you hear the word, the term, born again. What comes to mind? What images come to mind? Born again Christian. I wonder if that's something that tastes good to you or if that's something that's sort of like a sour kind of taste in your mouth. A born again Christian. As, as uh, we're going into 1 John, what we're seeing here in 1 John is a description of what it means to be reborn. We see it all through 1 John. So, for instance, um, in uh, chapter 3 of 1 John, we see that no one who is born of God, which is John's phrase for born again, so we're born of the flesh, and then we're reborn of God. He says, no one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning. Chapter 4, he says, no one uh, or, or whoever loves God is born of God and knows God. In chapter 5, he says, he who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Then he again says in chapter 5, those who are born of God love all people who are born of God. And then later in chapter 5, he says, those born of God overcome the world. So we're looking at this concept of being reborn and trying to understand what it really means to be born of God, to be reborn, or to be born again. But as I was studying and sort of researching for this series, uh, I wanted to research this phrase, born again. And so I went where any of us would go uh, if we need like a really solid definition, uh, and that's the Urban Dictionary, right? Online, really great place. Like if, you, if you're working on some research, just Urban Dictionary. Definition number one in the Urban Dictionary for born again, born again, which, by the way, I want to say this about the Urban Dictionary, all right? It really does kind of give the idea of what people, how people describe and, and think and define various terms and words, right? Definition one in the Urban Dictionary for born again. Born again Christians are the sect of Christianity for people who... Um, uh, can't say this word, effed it up the first time around. I have to somehow work my way through this definition for you to keep it PC since we're in church. They believe that redemption will come from following the Bible more literally than God would ever wish to the point which their ideology becomes culty and near immoral. Born-agains are extremely hypocritical and their misuse of God's text, texts and discriminatory views give Christianity a bad name. Ironically, it is these people who preach their superiority that are the biggest jack donkeys. And then, I, they didn't say donkeys, that was my interpretation. 
And then they have the nerve to look you in the face after they have just finished bad-mouthing gays and other religions and preach the superiority of their ideology. And then their example of a born-again is someone who says, OMG, I hate her. Anyways, you should really accept Jesus into your heart. So I wonder if that's how you would describe a born-again this morning. And I wonder if you would put yourself in, yeah, that's me, right there, that description. Born-again, right here. I wonder if that's what, when Jesus used the term born again himself, when Jesus invented the term, I wonder if that's what Jesus was thinking. I wonder if that's how Jesus would describe someone who is truly born again or reborn or born of God, not born of the flesh. So what we're doing this, this series is, is discovering and studying what it means to truly be reborn. And I think that this is very important as you know, as in some ways, Christianity has done a bad job explaining and showing and demonstrating to the world what it truly means to be born again. Because if we are born of the flesh, and so we act this way and we operate this way, and then we claim to be reborn by the Spirit of God, meaning we're no longer controlled by the desires that we once were controlled by, we're no longer operating in the same kind of framework that we once did, but we're reborn, like we have a new mind. Do we really demonstrate that and, and, and communicate that well to the world? I think we've probably done a bad job. And I think we've probably in some ways um, given the, the concept of born again, reborn, or born of God, a, a bad name. And so we're going to study then First John and what John describes as one who is re- reborn. Um, as, we, as we go through this, um, this, we're entering Christmas. Did, any, did anybody know that? In case you're like, oh, Christmas. We're entering into the Christmas season and we are looking at the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God in this world where God became flesh. And then we're trying to understand that what it means for us to be reborn in that same sense, in that same spirit. What the birth of Christ 2,000 years ago has to do with us being reborn, reborn today. A couple quick facts about First John as we go. This will sort of help you uh, as, as we study because I'm going to refer back to these so if you want to make a couple quick notes here. Quick facts of John, three of them. Number one, this is written by, uh, guess who? Shot in the dark? John. And um, most, most feel, it's, it's pretty widely accepted that, that John, the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1 John. All right? If you were to actually flip back to the Gospel of John, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels to the stories of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John and 1 John actually have a lot of parallels. They actually begin in a very similar way. And so we see his writing style. We see that, that John, who was with Jesus, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples, wrote this, this letter, uh, 1 John. Now, the Gospel of John was written to unbelievers. So this is a second quick fact. 1 John is not written so much to unbelievers, it's written to Christians. It's written to those who claim to be reborn. Um, and not just Christians in general, but specifically, most people believe 
that 1 John was written to Jewish Christians. And that's an important fact that we're going to kind of go back to later. I'll, I'll point that out to you later. But I just want to tell you why, uh, why I would agree with that. It's written to Jewish Christians in chapter 2, verse 20. It says it's written to those who are anointed by the Holy One. Verse 21, it says it's written to those who knew the truth, past tense. Verse 7 of chapter 2, he says it's, it's, uh, that there was this old commandment that they received from the beginning. So most people believe that this is written to, definitely to Christians and most likely Jewish Christians. Now, third quick fact, which is also uh, interesting and, and important. It's written to Jewish Christians during a time where a heresy known as Docetism or similar to Gnosticism, if you're familiar with the Gnostics, has been entering into the church. Basically, it just means this. There was a group of people saying, Jesus did not really come in the flesh. He, didn't really, he wasn't really here in the flesh. It's just this idea. It's a knowledge. It's, it's, we can learn things from it. But, but this concept of Jesus literally being here and doing everything and, and miracles and everything that you claim to have happened, that didn't really happen. And so John then is confronting this heresy that has slipped into the church. So with those three facts, we're going to dive into it. We're going to look at verse 1, and we're just going to kind of pick through up until uh, chapter 2, verse 2. So you all ready to dive into 1 John? Say yes. Preach it. Woo! Here we go, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's talking about Christ here. He's, he's, he's beginning with this statement of who Jesus is. He's that which was from the beginning, same way that gospel, the gospel of John starts. And he's, notice how he says this. We've, we've, we've seen him, or we, we've heard him, we've seen him, and we've touched him. What he's saying is, and again, he's referring, he's, he's getting at these folks who are saying that Jesus never actually came in the flesh. John's like, yo, I was with him for three years. Like, I walked with him. I was there. I was, I was one of his closest disciples. And when he was here, we heard his voice. We, we heard his teachings. We saw him with our eyes. And we, we touched him. We, phys- we, we physically touched him. Like, Jesus was was here, and then look what, how he describes Jesus in verse 2. He says, the life was made manifest. A manifestation is what? Does anybody know? Sort of like an appearance of a spirit. So this, this concept of God all of a sudden appearing in the world, that's a manifestation. So what he's saying is that this life then that we heard, that we touched, that we, that we, that we, that we saw was a manifestation of God. He was made, it was this, this life that was made manifest, and we've seen it, we testify to it, and he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, when did Jesus start? When did the life of Jesus start? Was it 2,000 years ago in a manger? No. What he's saying is, is we're talking about this eternal life, he says, which was with the Father. So the life of Jesus didn't begin in a manger 2,000 years ago, but Jesus' life has always existed with God, as God, in the creation and in the foundation of the world. Jesus has always existed, he's saying. This life was made manifest to, manifest to us, this eternal life which was with the Father. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, 
Now here's his purpose for writing. You all need to get this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is this. Here's the purpose for this writing of 1 John. So that you may know God. So that you may have fellowship with us and know that we have fellowship with God so that you too may have fellowship with God. I'm writing these things. So, so here's John, three years traveling with Jesus, been preaching Christ ever since he, he, he witnessed the resurrection, been preaching the gospel, and he's yet again proclaiming, like, look, I want you to get this. I want you to know this so that you too may know God. So that you, really, that you may really know Him. So that you may really have fellowship, have a relationship with God. And what a gift that is. Amen? I mean, what a great reason to write a letter to some of your friends. Maybe this Christmas, a Christmas card. I'm writing this Christmas card for this purpose. So that you may know God. So that we may have fellowship in God. So that you may have a relationship with God. It's the greatest gift we can give anyone. Here's where we're convicted every year as we enter into Christmas time, all right? This is where I'm convicted. This is where our church has been convicted in the past. Going into Christmas, um, each, each year we, we celebrate, we, we buy gifts, shop, we have good times, have family, we, we uh, I don't know, enjoy lights, enjoy beauty, take vacation time off. This, this year, while we do that, now all of that, by the way, is good stuff to do. I, mean, I encourage you to do that. It is a good thing to celebrate the gift that we have of knowing God through God becoming made known to us through Jesus Christ. It's a gift we ought to celebrate. Here's where we need to be convicted, though. Over, from, from now until Christmas, as we shop as we wrap gifts, as we decorate, as we take vacation, as we spend time with friends and family. From now until Christmas, 2.9 million people will die. 2.9 people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ will go out into eternity without knowing God. And we have to stop back as Christians and we have to say, what is the birth of Jesus all about? Well, this, what, this, is what we're, this is where we're going. This is what Christmas is all about. And what we discover, it's all about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with God, coming into fellowship with the creator of this world. And that's not something that John felt like he could just keep to himself. I don't think John, to celebrate this wonder of this opportunity to know God, would just simply come together with a couple friends and sit back for a month and have a nice little time. Not when there's 2.9 million people who have never heard the gospel who will be gone by Christmas time, going out into eternity without Christ. 
So this is where we as a church regularly just stop and we're, where we're convicted and we say we have to remember what Christmas is about. We have to remember why we're here. We have to remember what we're celebrating and we have to figure out what it's going to look like now to proclaim this Christ to the 2.9 million people. We have to figure that out. And so let's not waste then, let's not, as we enter into this Christmas season, let's not waste the opportunity to, I mean, some simple things, spending less and giving more so we can give to missions, we can give to projects, we can, uh, taking time to, to, to invest in that relationship that you know God has brought into your life. Taking time to, may, maybe to go home so you can share Christ with your family. I mean, we could, just, we, could, we could just go on. What is it going to look like for you to sacrifice so that the world may know God? So that you may be able to proclaim this wonderful gospel message to the world. Do you have to sacrifice your pride? Your ego? What people think of you? And, but he, he doesn't stop there with his purpose. Look at verse 4. He says, and we are writing, he says, these things, so that our joy may be complete. Now, isn't that interesting? He's writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We could say that the entire purpose of 1 John is so that we may know God, so that we may have fulfilled and completed joy. God wants your joy. He, he, wants your, he, he doesn't want us to act like robots. God doesn't want us to just be like robotic creatures that are doing good works for him and that are worshiping him because we have to. God wants your joy. He wants your satisfaction. He wants your happiness. And he, this is why sin is so terribly sinful it's because we then take other things and we say, no, I'm going to find joy here. I'm going to find my ultimate satisfaction here. And we place these things in the seat that only God can sit. We cannot find joy in any other place. We can't find satisfaction and happiness in any other place. But we try, don't we? I mean, I, we, we try to find happiness. We try to find joy in relationships. In in, in, in finding satisfaction in this friend, in this person, or maybe in, if you're married, in your spouse. I mean, my wife and I have done this to each other all the, like, for years. Like, we're trying, we're, I'll take my wife and I'll place her in that seat, that God seat, and say, I, you need to satisfy all my needs. Like, if I'm not happy, it's because of you. You, I need to find all of my joy in, in you. And, and here's where it's actually a very hateful thing to do. No human can, can, can meet your needs of satisfaction. When we take a friend and we say, I'm going to find utmost joy, like all of my happiness is going to be in my friend or in my wife or even in my kids. Because see, people will think, you may say that's a moral thing, like, oh my gosh, you're going to tell me that I have to find more joy in God than in my kids? And the answer is like, yeah. And you have to understand that if you get that mixed up, you're actually doing a very mean thing to your kids. 
You're trying to find something, some kind of satisfaction and joy and happiness in your children that your children can never give you. And then what happens? I mean, we, we see this all the time. You get angry with that person. You're not doing a good job in the God seat. So sin is sinful because we've taken God out of His seat, out of the place where He can give us satisfaction and happiness and joy, and we've placed other things there, relationships. And man, if you were to like read my journal, I mean, you can see this over the last couple of years, just times where I'm trying to find joy, and I don't even realize it in the moment, but I'm trying to find joy in something that, that will not give, deliver, will not give me complete, lasting satisfaction in relationships, in, in beauty, in trying to find things that are beautiful, music, trying to find satisfaction, happiness there, nature maybe, or, or the beauty of people. The problem with beauty is beauty is always quickly fading, isn't it? You, you listen to the most beautiful song, and you get to that, that portion of the song where it's just like, like something just turns in the melody, and it's so beautiful, and you pause it, and you rewind it, and you listen to it again, you pause it, and you rewind it, and you, you play it over and over, but you know that it's quickly fading. You can't capture that. There's no real satisfaction. There's no full joy in relationships, in beauty, in sexuality. We try this with our sexuality as well, trying to find satisfaction there. We can't find it. We only want more. We can never find the end. We try this with success. If I can, if I can make more money, if I can have, have, have more status, then I'll be satisfied. We, we can't find it there. And what we see, what John is saying is, I'm writing that you may know God so that you may have complete, full joy. So that your joy may be complete. And there is such joy in knowing God, isn't there? Again, if you were to read my journals, what you'd find is these, these places where I'm just like falling into the rest of, of God and just seeking and trying to delight in Him. And what, what happens is when we place God in the proper place, when we know God, when we are seeking that relationship with God, everything else falls into its proper place. And relationships are enjoyable. We can actually enjoy our relationships because we're not seeking seeking some kind of ultimate satisfaction through them. Beauty. Beauty makes sense now. When we see beauty, we know that it's quickly fading, but we know that it's pointing us to something that's truly beautiful. Something that is lasting. Something that's not quickly fading. Same thing, same thing with sexuality. We can enjoy sex with our spouse because we know that this is pointing us to something that's much deeper or success. Success is redefined. Success, all of a sudden we have a whole whole different uh, set of metrics that we use when when we start to look at what success is. We find real joy in knowing God. So here, that's that's the purpose of 1 John, that we may know God, and that therefore our joy may be complete. Now, how, how can this be? How do we find this kind of knowledge of God? How do we find this kind of joy in God? Look at verse 5 with me. This is the message, he says, which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in, uh, while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. Now, let's just stop right there. When I was first studying this passage, and I don't know if it, even as I read that, if it hit you in the same way. When I was studying this passage, and I read those verses, five, six, and seven, it was almost this overwhelming sense of failure. Like, wow. That's what it takes to know God? I mean, let me, let me break it down for you. Number one, he says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let's think about this. God is light, in him is no darkness. Not God is a light, or not God is the light, but rather God is light. Like his holiness is who he is. There is there's, God doesn't reflect holiness. He doesn't reflect light. There's not like a standard of holiness that exists apart from God that he somehow meets and then therefore he's holy, but rather God is holy. Like he is 100% completely, eternally, infinitely light, holy. And everything he does is light. Everything he does is holy. Everything he does is good. It's pure. It's just. There is no, no holiness that exists apart from him. That's what he is. And then what, it, what John says is that in God is no darkness at all. I mean, there's not, 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 not an ounce of darkness. There's nothing in him that you can accuse him of, of, of as sinful as, as dark. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. Now let's just pause right there, all right? So that's the holiness of God. And then where John goes, the second thing he says, he says, if we say we know him, but we walk in darkness, we lie. Whew. I wonder how you measure your own holiness. What measuring stick do you use? to determine how holy you are. See, this is what we typically do as Christians. We typically use the standard of the world as our measuring stick for holiness. So we say, I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian, pretty holy guy, I know that I am, because, man, you should see them. You should see my friends. My friends tell me I'm, I'm pretty good. You should see their lives. And, and, and so we, we work our way around it. We use the standard then of the world as our measure, as our metrics, as our measuring stick of how holy we are. So we, yeah, we're, we're pretty set apart because, wow, they're not. My wife uh, went out with some friends uh, some time ago. And um, while they were out, she said that they saw this couple who was not with them. Um, important to say that. There was, a, there was this couple there, and uh, they were, um, what's the word? Depraved. <laughs> they just kind of uh, uh, nearly committing fornication at the bar. All right, just kind of like a little, a little too much. And then here's where, what my wife and I were talking about was like, what if the law didn't exist? 
What if the law of the government didn't exist and they could do whatever they wanted to do and there was no ramifications for it? What would they have done then? Wow. That's pretty depraved. So then here we are as Christians. We, we go out and we're hanging out and we see this kind of stuff and we're like, man, I'm not like them. I'm, like, like I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not nearly as depraved as they are. So, so then we use then the world as our measuring stick for holiness. Now here's the problem with that is the world was never meant to be our standard of holiness. We're not just supposed to be better than the world. Our standard of holiness is what? It's this God who is what? Light, perfectly holy, and in him there is no what? Darkness. So our standard of holiness is the holiness of God. That's our standard. Now how are we doing? Not as good as I felt five minutes ago. So here's what he's saying. God is light. God is perfect. There's no darkness in God. And if, uh, let let me read it again. If we say we know him, but we walk, he says, in darkness, we lie. And then he goes on. He says, if we walk in the light, however, then we know him. And Jesus forgives us. If we walk in the light. Now, how many of us, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, How many of us, if I said, do you walk in the light? How many of us could raise our hand? Yes, I walk in the light. We all know that if I asked that question, there would probably be three people that raised their hands. Yes, I walk in the light. And everybody else would think, what a hypocrite. Like that person is so self-righteous. That person actually thinks that they walk in the light. Like I know they're a sinner. I was with them last night. (laughs) Do you walk in the light? How many of us can boldly raise our hands? And then the higher someone raises their hand, yeah, I walk in the light. Then we're even more like, no, you're not. You're a sinner. You don't walk in the light, right? So we all know that if I were to ask that question and ask you to raise your hand, do you walk in the light? Most of you would, would think, do I really walk in the light? Ah, don't know if I can raise my hand. Because I know there's still some darkness in here. Now, going back to 1 John, he says, if we know him, but we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't really know him. If we walk in the light, then we know him. So what, what does this say then if, we're, if we say, well, I don't know if I can raise my hand to say, yes, I walk in the light. Does this also come with the realization that we don't really know God? Is this what we're saying? Because it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like one or the other. Like you either walk in darkness and you don't know God and you're a liar, or you walk in the light and you know God. And see, this is where when I'm studying this, I'm like kind of gulping hard. Like, oh shoot. I don't know. Can we know God? Because the more we examine ourselves, the more, what, beautiful we are? 
the more holy we are. No, the more we examine ourselves, we all know how it goes. The more you look at your heart, the more sin you see. It's like, I don't know if I want to peel that layer of sin back because I know that there's a whole lot more underneath it. (laughs) You see, if John left this right here at verse 7, if that's where we ended off, we would be uh, the most pitied of all people. Because I don't know if any one of us could say, yes, I walk in holiness. That's me. If, if the author ended right here at verse 7, we would be left sitting in our accountability groups, examining ourselves, talking about the sin that we have. We would talk about our depravity that we see. We would be going deeper into the, the darker recesses of our hearts. We would be exposing more sin. We would be looking at sin. And we would be left miserable people. We would be left discouraged. Because the more we look at ourselves, the more discouraged we become. The more we examine our hearts and the more we try to confess our sins to one another, the more we realize that there's, it's, it's like this stuff that just doesn't, it's never ending. And then we st- step back and we say, how can John in verse 4, how can John say that there's joy here, that he's writing these things so that our joy can be complete? Like if John just stopped right there in verse 7, we'd be like, what? You just told me that you're writing this so our joy can be, can be complete, and now you're giving me this? That I have to walk in holiness? And if there's any darkness in me that I don't know God, how can this be, John? How can there be joy there? And some of you may be sitting here right now saying, man, like, I know that the Christian life is supposed to be happiness. I know that the Christian life is supposed to be, 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 be joy, but I'm not finding it. I'm not finding joy in following Christ. I'm not finding joy when I read the Bible and I'm so deeply convicted of my sin. I'm not finding joy when I when I go to church, I'm not finding, I'm not finding the joy that, that supposedly I'm, I'm, I'm to have. Look, if we, 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 could, we could listen to the gospel preached, we could sing songs about the gospel, but if our spiritual lives stop right there at verse 7, that we must walk in light, not darkness. And that's where we stop then we will not find joy. We will just find that it is impossible for us to walk in light. We try. We try to be better. We try to do do better. We try to get rid of this thing. We try to adopt this thing. And we try to walk in light, and we just can't do it. But that's not what God's after, is it? I mean, is not God after our joy? So we can't stop at verse 7. I want to I continue so you can see where John goes with this. <clears throat> Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, guys, if our eyes are fixed on ourselves, 
and what we do, we will be left with very little and fleeting joy. But if our eyes are fixed on Christ and what he did, we will discover full and complete joy. Do you see what John did right there? He's like, look, God, completely holy, only holy, eternally holy, and if you, if you are not holy, if you're not walking in the light, in that kind of holiness, if there's darkness in you, if you're walking in darkness, then, then you don't know Him. And then each one of us says, but we have sin. How can this be? I have sin. And so he turns the corner with it, and he says, right there in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So if, if we are self-righteous, and we deny sin in our lives, then we deceive ourselves. You know what scares me with, with believers is not when believers are struggling with sin, but when believers no longer call the sins that they're struggling with sin. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. But, he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful he is long-suffering. He is patient. He continues with you. He, I mean, he's, he's faithful to you. He is faithful, and He is just, meaning it's right for Him to do so. It's the right thing for Him to do. He is faithful, and He is just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all darkness, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, how is that? How is God right? How is God just as the judge to give you the non-guilty verdict? How can that be? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he's essentially saying, look, as, as I'm explaining all of this to you, as I'm explaining once again the gospel to you, my hope is that you actually stop sinning. Like I, I had a pastor once say uh, to me, he said, if you give people too much grace, then they will continue on in sin. Now, that would only be true of someone who does not understand grace. Because when we understand the great grace of God, it propels us out of a life of sin. And so in no way, of course, I mean, is John saying that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so go ahead on with unrighteousness. He's not saying that. We all know that. I mean, his heart here is that we find the happiness and holiness. His heart here is that we no longer sin, that we stop sinning, and that we find then in this pursuit of light that we find this communion and fellowship with God. So he's saying, I, my, my heart, I hope, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. But look, again, he says, but if anyone does sin, he's forever cut off, he's done, 
God's had it with you? Enough's enough? No. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Everybody say amen to that. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate with us. Do you see how it's not about us? Do you see how it's not about what we do and our holiness is not about what we don't do? Do you see how our holiness completely is dependent on the holiness of God and then the manifestation of God in this world through Jesus Christ, that little baby born in a manger? And that our holiness completely comes from Him And so then we walk in the light. We can all say, yes, I walk in the light, not because I do all of the right things or because I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, but because Christ did it all for me on my behalf. And he stands there as my advocate. You know what an advocate is? I looked up the Greek word for it. It's uh, it's parakletos, which means one who pleads another's cause before a judge. Think of advocate as, as an attorney. I mean, who would you want as your attorney in heaven to plead your case for you? You want to choose someone from this room? You want to choose me? You want to represent yourself? Or do you want the lamb who was slain with blood, with the nails, prints in his hand, who said, no, it's been finished. The work is done and my blood is on them and it is Right, it is just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Christ is our advocate. He is fighting for you on your behalf. My brother, my sister, you who are struggling in sin, you have to understand that Christ is fighting for you. He is advocating for you on your behalf. He is saying, no, my my blood covered those sins. He is your advocate, and he says he is the propitiation for sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world, meaning not only just the sins of the Jewish Christians he's writing to, which was, of course, another heresy that they were starting to buy into, but he's saying not just for the Jewish Christians' sins, but also for the sins of the Gentiles, the sins of all that, God, that Christ died for, the, the 2.9 million who are the, the, the nations, the world, He is a propitiation, meaning he's a sacrifice. He stood in our place. He absorbed that wrath of God on that cross. And he, he bore God's wrath for our sins. He bled for your sins, and his blood covers every one of your sins, past sins, present sins, and your future sins. And Christ stands as your advocate. Three questions I want to I want to leave you with. Number one, are we willing to proclaim this message to the nations? Two point nine million people who have never heard the gospel. That's not everybody who's dying, that's statistically those who have never heard the gospel. Two point nine million people will die between now and Christmas and go out of this world into eternity without knowing Christ. Are we willing 
to proclaim this message to the nations? And I actually consider different ways of asking that question. And I think that's the best way because I think the answer is we all know that we need to proclaim this message. We all feel that. We, we see it. We know the lives of the people around us. The co-workers that we've yet to share the gospel with. Our friends that we're too afraid to share the gospel with. But are we willing to proclaim this message to the nations? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to spend less? Are we willing to give more? Are we willing to go if God calls us to go? Are we willing to, 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 to plant another church? Are we willing to send a missionary to, to a people group who has never heard the gospel? Are we willing to do whatever God calls us to do as a church and to take this message to those who have, have never heard it? Are you willing to take this message to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your friends? Because you know, You know, a lot of people go on foreign missions trips. <clears throat> it can be a very good thing. And it can also be a, a cover-up, an excuse for not actually sharing and living out your faith as a missionary right here at home. It can make us feel better about the fact that we don't do that here. Are we willing to be a missionary here? Are we willing to proclaim this message here and then go? Are we willing? Second question I want to leave you, leave you with. Um, do you know the joy of grace? I mean, what is, what is, is this just religion to you? Are you just trying to not do certain things, trying to do other things, trying to follow a list of worship schedules and small groups, Bible studies? Is this just a religion to you, or do you know the joy of grace? We must know the joy of grace in order to know the, 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 the happiness of holiness. Striving for holiness, striving to walk in the light, is not a joyful thing to do unless we understand grace, unless we are propelled by grace, unless we have found our satisfaction our hope, and our joy in that light. But if, if our satisfaction and our joy is found anywhere else, pursuing holiness will not be a happy endeavor. It will just simply be religion. But when we know grace, and we know the work of Christ, and what He's done for us, then we are propelled into holiness. And it is a, indeed a happy endeavor. Third question I want to leave you with. Is Jesus fighting for you or are you fighting for yourselves? Think about your spiritual walk. Think about your relationship with God. Is Jesus your advocate or are you advocating for yourself? Uh, a friend of mine I want to put this into, pers into perspective for you. A friend of mine um, who is an agnostic, the same friend I referred to earlier, he said to me once, um, he said, Joel, if we were talking about the gospel, and he said, if, if, if you're right, like if, 
at the end of the day, I die, and all of a sudden I'm standing before God, and I'm going to be judged. And you're right. Then I'll just ask that you be called up to represent me. You could sort of be my attorney. And, and, and then I want you to say, hey, he was a good guy. He was a little confused. He didn't quite get it all, but you ought to let him, let him through. He's like, you can, you can represent, r- represent me. <clears throat> and he said it like half serious, but half serious, <laughs> right? Um, and I was like, dude, you don't want me to represent you. You don't want me to be your advocate. And, and actually, as he said that, it, it kind of all came together for me. I was like, one, you certainly, he knows that you don't want to be representing yourself, right? You don't want to do, you don't want to stand before God and say, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I kicked this addiction, all right? And, and so that's, that, that's what I have to offer. You don't want to have to represent yourself before God. You don't want to be advocating because you know that there's too much darkness there. That we need that grace of Christ. And you certainly don't want me representing you or anyone else. The whole point of the gospel is this picture of a courtroom and Jesus is standing there as your advocate. He's standing there as your advocate who has done the work for you. He has paid the price for you on your behalf and he is fighting for you. And I was like, dude, telling my friend, I'm like, listen man, that's the point. Like, if you don't accept Jesus now as your advocate, he's not going to be your advocate then, and I'm, my word isn't going to hold any water. So let Jesus be your advocate. Let him be the one to fight for you. This is why Jesus came in that manger 2,000 years ago. This is why this this God who created the world manifested himself among us, became human, and lived among us as a baby, came as a servant, lived the life that you and that I could never live, died on that cross, the death for us. God's punishment, God's wrath was placed upon him on the cross. He was the propitiation for our sins. He, he, He cleansed us. Of all of our sins, he, we, we were granted with his righteousness, and then he stands as your advocate before God, and he says, it's finished, and this one is mine. This one's mine. They have my righteousness written all over them. They have my holiness. They have my blood covering their sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to enter into 1 John, and and I ask that as we continue to do this, as we continue to move through this letter, that you will open up our eyes to what it means to be reborn, what it means to, to die to our flesh and to have the very Spirit, your Spirit, indwell us and give us the power that we have never understood, never seen, never had, and that we then truly can, can, uh, it, it become a manifestation of you in this world. And that the world then can look on us and say, oh, that's what it means to be reborn. That's what it means to be born again. That's what, that's what it means to have the Spirit of God come alive in you. And God, give us the boldness then to proclaim this message 
to the 2.9 million people. Proclaim this message to the nations. Proclaim this message to our coworkers and to our family members and to our friends that we may know the grace of God and that they may propel us into holiness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.